Support for today's show comes from Locker Room, the best place to talk sports. Make sure to follow me on Locker Room at Jake Reiner, and I'll invite you to chat on my weekly baseball room, uniquely titled Meeting on the Mound. Download Locker Room for free on the Apple App Store today and join the conversation. Welcome to Meeting on the Mound. I'm Jake Reiner. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Jake's Takes. We've got a good show lined up for you. It's just going to be me, so deal with it. But there's a couple of things I want to talk about, one of them being the Dodgers-Padres series and what defines a rivalry. Next, we'll go into an update on Jacob deGrom. I'll give you a couple of thoughts on why I think the umpires are so bad and what we can do about that. And then I'll tell you about a couple of teams I'm keeping my eye on that you should be as well. And then finally, I'll give you my take on one of my favorite home run calls from around the league. So first of all, let's talk about baseball rivalries and what makes a great baseball rivalry. This week, we've seen the Dodgers and Padres match up seven times. They're going to meet a total of 19 times throughout the 2021 season. And people are already talking about this being the biggest rivalry in baseball. These two teams have played each other a total of 895 times. The Dodgers have won 489 of those games. The Padres have won 406. That's actually a lot closer than I thought it was. I thought the Dodgers would have a much bigger margin than that. But I think because of the way that the franchises are set up, this will get a lot closer. I think the Padres are a lot more competitive than in years past, obviously and they will close that gap a little bit. But the cool thing is is that the Dodgers are still at the top of Major League Baseball. So these two teams are going to be going at it for a, a, a long time, I feel. But there are a lot of things that go into a rivalry, one of them being obviously the overall record of both the teams head to head. But there are a lot of other things like the hatred between the fan bases. I feel like the hatred within a fan base is taught at the very, at a very young age, pretty much after birth, when you finally realize who you are as a person, maybe you're in love with baseball, you find out who your team is, then you find out who you hate. Like as a Dodgers fan, you know, you bleed Dodger blue and you can't stand the San Francisco Giants. Similarly, you can't, you, you can't stand the Angels, but most importantly, you hate the San Francisco Giants. I don't know that a Dodgers fan today being born or in the last few years could say that they hate the San Diego Padres. We know that the Padres probably hate the Dodgers because the Dodgers have been the class of the NL West for a long time now. They've won eight straight consecutive uh, division titles. But if you're a Dodgers fan, I don't know if you hate the Padres just yet. Maybe you're starting to because the Padres are a lot better. But there isn't that hatred factor there. So that's something that I think can build over time. We're already starting to see it on Twitter. Then there's also the what have you done for me lately idea, which is have these teams been relevant at the same time? Of course, the Dodgers have been relevant for the past eight seasons, for example. The Padres haven't been relevant um, 
for a long time and only started becoming relevant in 2020 and now in 2021. So I think we need to wait a couple more years for them to continue that relevancy to really have that conversation. But on the other hand, because they are the one of the top teams in baseball, there is that what have you done for me lately? So, so the recency of their success has a huge uh, is a huge reason why this could be a rivalry today. So there's a lot of things at play. Like, for example, you got the Yankees and Red Sox, right? Not only historically have they done, you know, major battles over the years in the regular season and in the postseason, but they are continually the best two teams in the AL East. Now, this year, the Yankees are are in the towards the bottom of the division and the Red Sox are towards the top. But year in and year out, you know when those two teams get together, it's going to mean a lot in terms of the standings. Over the past few years, the Dodgers and Padres have met. It doesn't really mean that much in terms of the standings. So that's going to be a a thing that changes in the future. Now, the other factor is how, how attractive are the stars on the team? Are they marketable? I think the Dodgers and Padres have... Uh, a, a an all-star team rosters right now. They have the Dodgers got Mookie Betts, Cody Bellinger, he's injured, but Clayton Kershaw, Trevor Bauer, uh, Walker Bueller, uh, Justin Turner, uh, the Padres have Fernando Tatis Jr., Manny Machado, Blake Snell, Yu Darvish. I mean, these are big stars in the game. These are, you know, top 10, top five players that are playing for these two teams. So that is something that will draw not only the home crowds, but also the national crowds. So that's something you got to take into account. But for example, even though the Dodgers and Giants are historical rivals, recently the Giants haven't been good. So the the rivalry doesn't mean as much, right? And And because the Giants don't have that star power like they used to have, nobody's really paying attention to the fact that the Giants are actually in second place and the Padres are in third place in the NL West. So it's not just one factor over another. It's a culmination of factors. If you have all of those things, like like I mentioned, the hatred for the fan base, the historical record between the two teams, the what have you done for me lately factor, the relevancy of these teams in the respective divisions. If you meet all of those criteria, that has the recipe for a magnificent rivalry. And I think we're starting to see that happening with the Dodgers and Padres. And it's not there yet. All of those things aren't there yet, but we're getting there. Moving on to the Dodgers and Padres series this season, it has been awesome. If you're a Dodgers fan, it's been awesome. If you're a Padres fan, it's been awesome. If you're a baseball fan, it has been terrific. They, Like I mentioned, they've played a total of seven games, six going into Sunday while we're recording this. The Dodgers took the first series, two out of three at Petco Park. That stadium was electric. This is a fan base that hasn't had a good team in a long time, and now they have a team that can compete with the bad boy Dodgers in the division. They were pumped. It it did have a playoff atmosphere to them. Before, when the Padres advanced to 
the wild card round, they threw a parade in San Diego during a pandemic, which wasn't wise. But my take on that was like, let's, you know, let's pump the brakes. This is a franchise that has never won a World Series. So let's, you know, let's cool it on that until they actually win one. But then those same fans who were celebrating in the streets are also calling the Dodgers World Series trophy in 2020 illegitimate. You can't have it both ways. You either got to be consistent that this season in 2020 really did matter to you or it didn't, but you can't split on that. However, I've evolved on this and I think that the atmosphere at Petco Park was great. I mean, you've got two teams at the top of their game going at it And this is a chance for the Padres, they feel, to try and upset the Dodgers in the NOS. I don't think it's going to happen, but the thought is there and the chances are there. So we've had a few great highlights so far. We've seen the benches clearing at one point. We saw a really hotly contested catcher's interference call between Clayton Kershaw and Jerks and Profar. Did he swing at the glove after the ball went into the catcher's mitt? It sure looked like it, but on the replay, obviously you see that the bat hit the catcher's mitt. So it is technically catcher's interference, although that was a a situation where if I'm in the replay booth in New York, I'm saying the ball was already past him by the time he started to swing. So it shouldn't have counted, but that was a great moment between Kershaw and Profar there. We saw Mookie's. 10% probability catch to win the game in game two that if he doesn't make that catch, the Padres tie that game and who knows what would have happened after that. So that catch was from Mookie was just unbelievable. And it's the kind of stuff you're going to see in this, in these matchups from for years to come round two at Dodger stadium. The Dodgers have were coming into this series kind of, banged up and not playing well, not hitting left-handed pitching well. They're missing Bellinger, of course, but also Zach McKinstry, Chris Taylor, Gavin Lux. Mookie Betts was out for a couple of games, so they're not at full strength. Neither are the Padres. Uh, You had Fernando Tatis Jr. coming back off an injury. One of their star pitchers, Denison Lamette, came back and immediately got injured, so these teams are not at full strength. And I think we've got to wait to see what those meetings will be. I hope, hopefully we'll get that at some point this year between these two teams that they're fully healthy and we can really see, you know, the fireworks. But again, Fernando Tatis Jr. Wow. I mean, the dude has been unbelievable against the Dodgers in this series. He hit two home runs off Kershaw. Then he hit two home runs off Bauer the next night. That's never happened before where a guy hits multiple home runs in back-to-back games off of Cy Young Award winners. That is an incredible stat. But also worth noting is that the night Tatis Jr. hit two home runs off Kershaw was April 23rd, 1999. And if you've been following uh, anything online the last few days, you know that that is the same date that Fernando Tatis Sr., Fernando Jr.'s father, hit two grand slams at Dodger Stadium in the same inning. It's cool. I think it's really cool. I think it's great for baseball, but I don't think that Tatis Jr.'s feat is even close to as impressive as his father's because not only did Fernando Tatis Sr. come up in an inning twice, which is already rare to have batted around, but comes up with the bases loaded 
twice, hits a home run twice, and off the same pitcher. That's always been my greatest question about that because the pitcher was Chan Ho Park for the Dodgers. And for the life of me, I've never been able to understand why he was left in the game that long and why he faced Fernando Tatis Sr. again. The manager of that Dodgers team was Davey Johnson, so maybe he's the only one that can really answer that. But it happened in the third inning, and it was already clear from the jump that Chan Ho Park didn't have it. And by the time Tatis came up a second time, Channel Park had already given up two home runs in that inning. One of them was the first grand slam to Tatis and another was a solo shot. So to me, I mean, looking back over that game and looking at what happened, cause I wasn't watching that game live in 1999, but man, I mean, just what, I mean, there was a few bad plays in that inning of couple of errors, but how Channel Park was able to survive that long to face Tatis to face Tatis senior again I will never understand especially in a game in April where that it doesn't I mean like get him out of there oh man but I'll tell you something else that is something that will never ever be broken that is a record that will never ever be broken I think along with um Joe DiMaggio's 56 game hitting streak I actually think that the 56-game hitting streak has a better chance of being broken than the Fernando Tatis two grand slams in one inning off the same pitcher. That's never going to happen again. You can mark that down. But like I mentioned, Junior hit two home runs again on Saturday off of Trevor Bauer. And this was cool because uh, Trevor Bauer had made a sort of a spectacle in spring training of pitching with one eye closed and getting batters out. He's even done it in the regular season. And he kind of points to his eye to let the batter and the catcher know that he's about to throw a pitch with one eye closed. So when Tatis hit his first moonshot off Bauer, he rounded the bases and turned to his dugout and covered one of his eyes to basically mock Bauer. And then the second time that Tatis went, went yard, he did the McGregor strut, which is something that Bauer does when he walks off the mound after getting a strikeout. So after Tatis Jr. crossed the plate, he did a little strut. Bauer had some post-game comments that I, I think a lot of people that don't know Trevor Bauer were shocked to hear, but if you do know him and you have been listening to what he's been saying, it was totally on brand because he is all for, whether it's pitchers or hitters, celebrating after a big moment, whether that's a home run or a big strikeout in a big moment. And I think we all could take a page out of Trevor Bauer's book in this instance because... This is what is going to grow this game. Let you know, as MLB had the had the uh, the campaign a few years ago. Let the kids play, and Tatis Jr. was having fun with it, mocking Bauer. Meanwhile, Bauer was having fun with you know striking out, you know making guys look foolish at the plate, and doing a and basically putting his quote unquote sword back into his scabbard after striking out some guys. So. That I mean, it's all it's all great. the The problem is, is that when you have pitchers like you know an angry Madison Bumgarner getting furious at Max Muncy for staring at his home run, not even celebrating, and then a few innings later, you'll you, you know a guy gets drilled in the back, and then you've got teams going at it and hitting each other, and 
we don't want to see that because that leads to serious injuries. And if you're if you're headhunting out there, whether it's one of the star players or one of the role players, it's just not okay. And I think that you know the best way to come back from being you know trolled or shown up that way is to dominate. And that's what Bauer did. He didn't let that get to him. He didn't throw any like chin music to, you know, rattle the cages of the guys. Cause that's, that's honestly soft. It, it, it honestly shows that you are not, you know, you, you don't trust in your stuff to be able to bear down and let that moment go and have your own big moment and have your own moment where you show up and you, you know, are pumping your fist or, you know, screaming or trying to fire up your dugout. I think we all need to take a page out of uh, Trevor Bauer's book because he's the one that has been saying over and over again, if you do something cool, you should be allowed to celebrate it. I mean, think about all the guys that, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, when they when they dunk on someone or they have a huge block in a basketball game or they score a monster touchdown. I mean, the celebrations are insane. And, you know, we don't take exception to that. Why is it different in baseball? It makes no sense. Like, why? Why do we need to drill someone with a hundred mile per hour fastball after he just, you know, showed you up? It's just not right. Moving on. So, you know, this episode or these episodes where it's just me, I call it Jake's Takes. I think I'm going to start a new segment called Jake's Jakes, where I highlight a Jake around Major League Baseball. One of the best Jakes in baseball right now is Jacob DeGrom. And, you know, fun fact, my name is actually not Jacob. It's just Jake. But for the purpose of this segment, let's let's call it like we see it. It's Jake DeGrom. The first uh, uh, we have an update on Jacob Degrom because the first time we talked about him or we profiled him on this on this segment was um, to tell you that he is an elite pitcher, but his offense never supports him, and the Mets don't win with him on the mound. Well, nothing's changed in the pitching department. He's still unbelievably dominant. So for the first two starts, he pitched a combined 14 innings. He gave up one run and 21 strikeouts, and he lost both of those games, which is insane. But the last two starts. On Saturday, April April 17th, he went six innings, gave up three runs, none of them earned, 14 strikeouts, one walk, and they won the game 4-3. On Friday, April 23rd, a complete game shutout, two hits, no walks, 15 strikeouts, and he got the win 6-0. In three of his four starts, he's, he's, he struck out at least 14 batters. That's, that's insane. But the thing I wanted to point out is the fact that Specifically in the game on Friday, April 23rd, in the complete game shutout, he went two for four at the plate with a double and an RBI. He actually knocked in the game's first run. And it made me it made me chuckle because it was it was sort of like, okay, if the Mets aren't going to score for me, I'm going to do it myself. And I I went to look up Jacob Jacob deGrom's batting stats so far this season. He's six for 11, which is a 545 batting average with a double and RBI and an OPS of 1.182. He's raking. He has a four game hitting streak to open the season and he has two multi-hit games. So the point I want to make here is, is that 
I love the fact that Jacob deGrom is taking matters into his, into his own hands and he's not an automatic out in the number nine spot. But to all the people out there that are clamoring for the universal DH and want the DH in the National League so bad and they can't stand hitters, uh, uh, pitchers hitting, just shut up. I mean, this this is, are you not entertained? Like this is what, this is baseball. This is what what I came to watch. Like, this is what I want to see. I want to see a pitcher who is arguably the best pitcher in the game not slouching at the plate and actually raking. We've already seen what Shohei Otani can do. He can throw a ball 100 miles an hour and hit a home run with an exit velocity of 115 miles an hour. That's already cool in and of itself. And you know, he's playing in the American league. So he DHs when he hits, but in that game, he was pitching and hitting in the lineup. I just think that we have to embrace pitchers hitting in the national league, whether it's good or it's bad because a a key sack bunt from a pitcher that can't hit is a great accomplishment. And I can tell you it's exhilarating when you watch a guy like Trevor Bauer who can't hit a lick. Admittedly, he, he says that he can't hit and we can see it on television. When he lays down a great bunt, it's a, it's a huge victory, but it also adds a ton of strategy to it. Dave Roberts said after the game last night that he was going to let Bauer keep going, even though he was at hundred pitches, but was forced to take him out of the game because he came up in a key spot with runners on base and with the Dodgers not being able to score often lately, they needed to capitalize on that, on that inning. So it adds an extra layer that you don't see in American league games with the pitcher hitting. And I just think that we need to appreciate for what it is. And I think what, I think a lot of people are appreciating it because last year we didn't have that and we had the DH and, like I said, I think the DH is fine. I think it. I think it's going to be. Uh, there's going to be a case where there where there is an, a universal DH, but I prefer it. I prefer to watch the pitcher hit. I really do. It just makes it makes baseball so much more dynamic. I mean, whether a pitcher is just absolutely awful at the plate, or he's really good, or you have a situation like with Bartolo Colon a couple of years ago, where the guy looks like he can't hit anything and then runs into one and crushes one over the wall at Petco Park. I mean, that's stuff you would miss if the pitchers never hit. So that's Jake's Jake's. All right, moving right along. Let's talk about umpires. I don't have a lot of stats to back this up, but I'm just going based off the eye tests on this one. The umpires, the home, the home plate umpires in particular have been bad, whether it's their inability to call a strike or what inability to determine what a strike is versus a ball or the inability uh, to uh, overturn calls that should be overturned and replay or what have you just umpiring has been bad. And I'm not sure if it's the fact that it actually is getting worse or we're just noticing it more. I think that with there, there are some Twitter accounts out there that monitor umpires, and maybe that's why we're we're seeing how how bad it actually is. Maybe it's always been this bad, but I mean, the fact is, is that they are just not getting it this year. There are some there are some calls that are so far outside the zone that they call strikes. It's laughable, 
And I don't understand why they're so fooled by pitch framing. Why are these guys so miffed by this? They know every single catcher in the major leagues is taught how to pitch frame. Some are more elite than others, but they all do it. They're all trying to steal strikes and it's all working. And I'm not sure how umpires can see a pitch that clearly is outside the zone, but then watch the catcher move his glove a foot over the plate to try and frame the pitch that they're all of a sudden convinced by that. It makes absolutely no sense. I don't get it. I mean, are they not in the correct position behind the catcher? Is that not is that not the most advantageous position to be in? I don't know. I don't know where else you could stand. You could stand behind the pitcher, but then you're further away from the plate than the pitcher is. So the pitcher actually has a better view than you do. I don't know what I don't know what position the umpire should be in, but like man, it is bad. And I don't know how they're being fooled so badly by this. Which leads me to a lot of people saying, we got to have robot umpires. We must, you know, we got to change this up. I disagree. Even with how, even with the bad umpiring that we've seen, I don't want robot umpires. I want human beings to be in control of this game. I don't want it to be solely taken over by technology. I think instant replay was a great addition. I think it needs I think instant replay needs to be expanded. I think you need to be able to look at more things in detail and be able to infer whether a guy leaned over the plate to get hit by a pitch. I think you should be able to tell by replay if that happened. But robot umpires is just something I'm not down for. I don't want to see uh I, I want to see the I want I want to see umpiring get better. I want to figure out a way to make these guys better. I think one thing that you could add eventually, and I think I I would be on board with this, is that maybe in the seventh inning or later, a manager will have either one to two challenges on a ball or strike call. And it, you know, it wouldn't be that like they would need to go look at the replay and like put the headset on or whatever. It would be like in tennis where a player will challenge a challenge a call on the court. And immediately you see that graphic pop up of whether the ball hit the line or not. That's what needs to happen. There needs to be a manager needs to challenge the call. It needs to go straight up to whoever's in the broadcast booth or in the press box or whatever, or who's ever monitoring the game from New York or wherever they're from. And there needs to be a quick and instant. They're, they're, they're going right to the K zone and they're looking to, to see where the ball ended up. And it should be an instantaneous like, yep, but maybe the umpire's wearing an earpiece. Maybe, maybe have them have an earpiece and in New York, they see it on the screen. They're like, yep, that was a strike. They signal it to the umpire. He makes the call. End of story. Maybe that's what needs to happen. But I don't want to see a robot umpire behind the plate, you know, basically calling balls and strikes and not having a human being there. I don't want that. And, and, and I, but I think that there are ways we can improve it. So that would be my take on, on how we can fix umpiring. The umpires need to get better. I don't know, figure it out. They need to be better. And maybe down the line, we should consult K-Zone from the seventh inning later and have managers be able to challenge it. But it needs to be quick. It can't take four to five minutes like some of these instant replays do. All right, 
Moving straight along to um, a couple of teams I want you to take notice of. And if you are a fan of small market teams, this is your segment. (laughs) So the first team I want to just mention briefly is the Kansas City Royals. Now, this is a smaller market team that decided, you know what? The AL Central is up for grabs. There's one clear powerhouse, which is the White Sox. The Twins are on the decline. The Indians are kind of in rebuild mode. They just gave up on Francisco Lindor. This is our window. We have the talent to do it. We're going to make the moves necessary to make sure that this team is good. And the Kansas City Royals are first in the American League Central at 12 and 7. Who would have thought that that could have happened? They are good. And I really appreciate smaller market teams going out there and not selling and not giving up on their team, but actually building around the core that they have. They've got great stars over there in Kansas City with Whit Merrifield, who is just a just a stud. Jorge Soler's got power out of this world. Salvador Perez, who is is looking like you know 15 years younger than he is right now. They've got a really great team. And the cool thing is, is that they're not really blowing anybody out of the water statistically. Like their, their team batting average is, you know, six in the AL, which is good. It's top 10, but they're only hitting 236 as a team. They're eighth in OPS at 698. That's not great. Um, they're eighth in on base percentage at 305. Not great. All top 10, but not great overall. Um, they are, however, first in stolen bases at 18, which is cool. Small ball coming back. But a couple of things, uh, they've only lost one series so far. They've won every single series except for one. They're 5-0 and in one-run games. They were 8-9 and last season. They're 7-1 when scoring first. And their bullpen has been pretty solid. They've had six different Royals who have recorded at least one save this year. So they're doing a bullpen by committee. Love the Kansas City Royals. They've had some great dramatic wins, great comeback, walk-off wins. They're a team that you should be watching out for, and they're exciting to watch. Secondly, if you have, have been living under a rock, you haven't noticed what the Oakland A's have done. The Oakland A's started this season looking abysmal. They were 0-6. They looked terrible. but And they, and they eventually got to 1-7. But since they started the season 1-7, they have ripped off 13 straight wins. They are now 14-7, first in the AL West, best record in the American League, And this rivals, or this is getting up there close to two of their other longer winning streaks, which was 14 games in 1988 and 20, as you remember in the 2002, that was the uh, Moneyball year or the year that, uh, that Moneyball was written about. Um, You remember that those teams, unfortunately, those two teams never went on to win the world series, but I think that the Oakland A's are as good as I thought they were going to be. I thought that they you can never sleep on them. They always figure out a way to win. And I thought that this quote from their star first baseman, Matt Olson, was pretty cool. He, go, he went, we had great chemistry even when we were getting our asses kicked to start the year. That's how it started. We knew that, was, that wasn't the team that we are or the team that we could be. And obviously we see that now. I know it's easy for everybody to panic after the start we had, but I think everybody in the clubhouse knew long Uh, knew how long of a season we had. It's a great quote because they knew what they had. They knew they had talent. They knew they just needed to put it together. And hitting is contagious. Whether whether you've got a few guys that are slumping, it seems like the whole team is slumping. But if you got a few guys that are on fire, it seems like everybody's hitting. And same goes for pitching as well. 
I think that the that the fact that they had good chemistry and the fact that Matt Olson recognized that is a huge reason why they've been able to turn it around. They're a great story, and you should be following them as well as the Kansas City Royals. Finally today, I think this is a segment I want to start where I talk about my favorite broadcast calls of the week. I don't really have one in particular that stood out to me, so I'm just going to go with one of my favorite home run calls. So we'll just kind of do this segment kind of a kind of broad. One of my favorite broadcasters out there is Gary Cohen of the Mets. He's on the uh, the TV broadcast for the Mets, and he is a really great overall broadcaster. Not only does he get excited for the Mets, but he's interested in the other teams that they're playing, and he'll get excited when he sees a good play from another team. And I think that that is really important as a broadcaster to not just be excited for the home team, but be excited whenever there's an exciting play. But his home run call is great. It's not that it, it's not what he says, but how he says it. So his home run call is just basically like, it's out of here. But the way in which he uses his pitch and inflection will tell you how big of a home run it is and how impactful the home run was. So if it's a home run, if it's a solo shot, let's say in the second inning, maybe the Mets are down by a run or whatever or a couple of runs, let's say, he'll, he'll say something like, it's out of here. It's still impact, it's still, it still packs a punch, but it's not the walk-off home run where it, it goes really high in pitch. It's out of here. Or he'll double up and he'll go, it's out of here. It's out of here. And I think that those calls are just awesome. Um, I, I, I love that he's able to differentiate his home run calls one from another. They're not all the same. They all have to do with the situation. He's not going to get overly excited if the Mets are down 10 nothing and Michael Conforto hits a solo shot. He's not going to explode because I can guarantee you there are Mets fans watching that game that will groan and say, okay, yeah, whatever. It's a solo shot and we're down by 10 runs. What, you know, what does that do for us? He knows the moment. He meets the moment. And that's why he's he has one of my favorite home run calls across Major League Baseball. A 2-1 pitch. And a drive in the air to deep right field. That ball headed toward the wall. That ball is out of here. Out of here. A game-winning grand slam home run off the bat of Robin Ventura. Ventura with a grand slam. They're mobbing him before he can get to second base. The Mets have won the ball game. Ventura hit it over the right center field fence. A game-winning grand slam home run. I don't know if they'll let Ventura circle the bases, but it doesn't matter. The Mets have won it. They've won the ball game, and the Mets will send this series to a game number six on Tuesday night. Thank you guys so much for listening to Meeting on the Mound. This has been really fun. Check me out on Twitter, on Instagram. We have accounts there for Meeting on the Mound with Jake Reiner. Also follow me on Twitter at Reiner underscore Jake. You can also follow me on Locker Room. I'm on there all the time. Come join the conversation uh, for my Meeting on the Mound show. Um, But yeah, have a great week. Happy to have you here.